0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za.
1: Talk radio. Talk radio 702 and
0: 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And the Naked Scientist is brought to you by uh, Grolsch Premium Lager. Grolsch choose interesting, not for sale to persons under the age of 18. G-R-O-L-S-C-H. Hmm. Have you ever had that beer, Thomas? No. You've never had beer, you have pink drinks, right? <laughs> Chris, good morning. Hey, good morning. Lovely to have you with us. Now, I've read the book, The Mozart Effect, about uh, the impact of classical music on, um, on on infants, on babies when they're still in their mummy's tummy. Right now, biological link between early musical training and improved executive functioning. Is this a new development? Is it something that has already been known but is now being perfected or developed further?
1: Well, the study that you referred to was largely in relation to babies being exposed to sounds while they're inside their mother's stomachs. This study, which is by Nadine Garb from Boston Children's Hospital in the States and published in PLOS One, actually looks at children who practice a musical instrument or take part in music lessons as young children and also adults who take part in music lessons. And what they're interested in looking at is not whether they can do an IQ test very well or whether they do things, uh, tests, very well but what their brain scan says about them and what they did was to recruit a group of 12 kids who were regular practitioners of a musical instrument and they compared them with an equivalently sized group of kids that didn't do a musical instrument for a period of time and they compared the brain scans of these kids and they find that the children who do the music have evidence of much more activity in what's called their prefrontal cortex demonstrating uh, higher executive function. This is the part of the brain which is involved in thinking laterally or switching your decision or making decisions Mm -hmm. or weighing up facts, pros and cons and so on. So they're arguing that there might therefore be an influencing effect on how we switch states or process information and there may be an enhancement secondary to learning a musical instrument. But this study is not cause or effect. You have to be very careful how you interpret this because what this shows is an association of this particular a pattern of brain activity with individuals who play instruments, and incidentally the same thing we've seen in adults. And what you find, or what you have to be, what you have to be cautious of, is that it may well be that kids who play a musical instrument choose to play a musical instrument or pursue their musical instrument and their musical career for longer because they have the mental capacity to do it better and therefore find it more enjoyable compared with kids that lack that ability therefore they give up playing a musical instrument so when you look not surprisingly you find the people who play the musical instrument have an enhanced brain activity that would also go along with these other things so we don't know if this is cause or effect but it's certainly an interesting observation
0: i'm curious to know i mean would it make a difference uh what genre of music is is studied
1: well, the instance here is that they're looking at people who actually the inclusion criterion was playing a musical instrument. Okay. Because if you think about it, you've got to process lots of information very quickly. It's going to be visually dominated. You're reading notes and so on. You're also having to integrate information from other parts of your brain. What does it sound like? Am I blowing the right amount? Am I pressing my fingers down on the keys hard enough? Where are my fingers going? What am I going to do next? So there's an enormous amount of planning involved in the moment-by-moment playing of a musical instrument. So. It Probably doesn't matter what sort of music you play, it's probably that very demanding or cognitive load of integrating all these different things together to play the music nicely, which is what everyone wants you to do, which is what drives the effect, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. Our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567, 11 702 We are taking your SMSs as well on 31702 and 31567. Chris, I have a question. With sports injuries, um, often you'd be encouraged to go see a physiotherapist, a chiropractor, an orthopedic surgeon, whatever. What do we say about the body's own ability to heal itself from sports injuries? If you've twisted an ankle, you've pulled a muscle, whatever, if you just step back and let time take care of business, does that actually happen? Or do you still need that medical intervention?
1: Well, up to a point. Uh, Your body is an amazing machine in terms of its ability to self-renew or self-repair. And the fact that we manage to live for, in some cases, 120-plus years, which is the age of some of the oldest people who are currently alive on Earth, is amazing. And that's all down to the fact that you have this army of cells called stem cells which have the ability to recognise when a tissue is damaged, they can then proliferate or grow, multiply, they can turn into the right sorts of cells in the right place to repair a breach or make good an injury. But there are limits, and... If you chop off someone's arm, if you have damage to your nervous system, there are certain things which you cannot recover from. Some animals can, and in fact there's a paper out this Mm -hmm. week on the salamander, a small lizard-like amphibian, and if you remove a leg from a salamander... It will regrow it, it will make another one and researchers are very interested in understanding how these much simpler creatures which nonetheless share many of the same genetic programs that we use to run our cells Mm -hmm. how they do it, because if we can understand how they do it, we can actually understand how we might be able to make people do it it might well be we have the capacity to regrow bits of our body or repair better but it's been turned off by evolution for some necessary reason but it could be that by activating those pathways transiently we can get the benefits of being able to repair and and replace things without the long-term disbenefit perhaps, of of something like cancer. It may be to prevent cancer that these very Mm. proliferative or um, reparative strategies have been disabled by evolution.
0: Our lines are open. Let's go straight to Linda in Parkhurst. Hi. Hello there. Mm. Hi. um, I've got a question regarding, it's connected to the music. Always wondered why or how my body knows how to whistle in tune. (laughs) <laughs> so when I when I play a, when I whistle a song, my I automatically whistle it in tune. How does my tongue and lips know how to do that?
1: Hey, great question, Linda. And the answer is that uh, by education, as you've grown up, you have learned th- how to actually marry a sound to another sound that you've heard. So if, if I say to you, is this note, and play you a note the same as this note, and play you a different note, your brain automatically has uh, a set of musical notes and a musical memory in it, so it can, it can compare a sound with another sound that it heard previously. In the same way, you've got a series of connections between those sound-interpreting centres in your brain, because there's a part of the brain that just decodes what we're hearing, and those nerve cells in that region of the brain are connected via various pathways to the motor Parts of your brain that control movements, and you have learned that this sound can be reproduced by positioning your tongue and your lips, and also blowing at this particular frequency or, or in this particular way or with this particular shape. And over a time, you have honed that experience. And another part of your brain called your cerebellum, which is right at the back of your head, the, the mini brain, this one coordinates all those motor movements and tunes them and optimizes them so that by a process of practicing you get better. And when we practice a musical instrument, it's not dissimilar than learning to whistle. You'll see lots of little kids whistle fairly tunelessly and tonelessly to start with, but they're slowly learning to match those movements to the sounds they want to make. And it's exactly the same with a musical instrument or playing a sport, actually. Your brain learns the motor movements and then they're automated so that you don't even have to think about them. They happen automatically because you call up that note and it goes with that particular movement.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's go to Margaret. Margaret in Boxburg High. Um, Good morning. Um, I would just like to note uh, uh, in in an instance where I noted that my daughter was
1: going to have a caesar because she was going to have her baby adopted. Now, just before she went into the theatre to have her baby, I sort of rubbed her tummy and said goodbye, little one, have a good life. And um,
0: when she came out of the theatre, I happened to see the... um, Uh, baby going to the nursery and I said to the people can I see him and they let me and when I saw him I said hello little one it was almost as if he recognized my voice was that possible
1: What an interesting question. And the answer is it's possible, yes, but not from the goodbye little one statement, but probably from the contact you'd had with your daughter leading up to that time. I assume you had had regular contact with your daughter through her pregnancy, because there's very good evidence now that when babies come out, they do two things. One, they recognise their own mother's voice and also sounds from the environment around them, because some sounds, not all sounds, but, but certainly lower frequency sounds, get into the... Uh, uterus very well during pregnancy and the baby's hearing system activates fairly early on during development so babies do become accustomed to sound their mother's voices are therefore the voice they're going to hear more than any voice during their time that they're developing so they do quite quickly become accustomed to their mum's voice and a recent study comparing babies born to German and French mothers showed that babies even cry with an accent like their own mother's accent and the reason they compared German and French was because the intonation in the pronunciations in those two languages are strikingly different and it made it easy to study the cries of the babies and they found that babies that were born to German mothers tended to clip or change their their intonation in a German way, uh, just like their mothers spoke, and the babies that were born to French mothers did the French equivalent. So babies are definitely learning sounds when they're inside their mothers. They're definitely acquiring an ability to recognise those sounds and also even to emulate those sounds. So babies are already born with an accent, which is bad news for anyone <laughs> that watches American soap operas, isn't it? <laughs> so it's, it's certainly possible that um, that y- your... Uh, Daughter's baby could have been responding to a voice that it found familiar to it let's
0: go to Francesco in kales River High hi uh, good morning oh. I have a question for the naked scientist yes okay um, I've read John Grubin, uh John Brebin's book the reason why I don't know if he's, he's if he's read it but um, according to him uh, a sounds like there's possibly no life elsewhere in the universe and this is based on uh, basically our our planet according to him is is, is special we are special and uh, the time that we find ourselves now in this you know our place in the universe and the time that we find ourselves in 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 the universe that that all of that points to the fact that there's possibly no life on earth and and now no life elsewhere in the universe and also this has got to do with the metallicity um, it's all got to do with the metallicity of, of our uh, our sun, our star. So I just want his opinion on that.
1: Thanks. Uh, interesting question. I haven't read the book, but thank you for letting me know. John Gribbin's a good author, so I might look him up, or at least look this title up. I personally am in dispute with that theory. Mm-hmm. I would say that statistics is the strong guide here, and NASA reckon there are more than a sextillion stars, 10... To the power 22, so the one followed by 22 zeros stars out there in the known universe. In other words, a billion billion stars. And if each star's got five to ten planets around it, then there could be at least 10 billion billion planets out there. And if only a fraction of those are stars like our own sun, that's still billions of stars like our own sun. And if a fraction of those have planets like the Earth around them, then that still means there are potentially billions of Earth like planets around other stars in our universe and there was a paper that came out well about a month ago no two two or three weeks ago now and they were showing that in a nearby star system they'd found a planet that was a massive earth it was basically 17 times the mass of the earth and more than twice the diameter so it was a giant rocky world um, but it was more than 11 billion years old our planet's only about four and a half billion years old And what this told the scientists who spotted it is that there have been rocky worlds out there for at least twice as long as we've existed for, and therefore the prospect of finding life and even intelligent life is enormously higher than before we made that discovery, because now we know that these planets do form, planets like the Earth do form, and they come in lots of different shapes and sizes. And the life that exists out there somewhere inevitably isn't going to be the same as us, because we are unique, this environment is unique, and therefore we have evolved uniquely to inhabit it. Other worlds will be very different, Mm -hmm. uh, yet the chemistry that makes us work is universal. The same physics is universal across the universe, and therefore it's inevitable that life, if it does exist, is, is going to use those same chemicals and those same laws of physics, but it will be in a very different environment, so it will look different to us, it will behave differently to us, but I think it's almost certain that, that some vestige of life is out there somewhere. Let's go to Nick in Centurion. Hi. Good morning, guys. Yeah, my question is, is there a connection between vaccinations and autism? Because uh, I've asked a lot of people a question, uh, were their kids? I found out that a lot of kids were born and they were normal and then suddenly after a year or so they suddenly the parents find that they're autistic and then I looked at the connection between when they got that MMR uh, vaccination and a lot of them say after a year or so they suddenly noticed their child was not normal anymore so yeah I'd like to know on the question on from that question. Hello Nick. There is no evidence whatsoever connecting vaccinations of any kind and autism. And this has been now thoroughly disproven. And the way in which it was addressed is that scientists and doctors, public health doctors, have looked at the rates of autism and they have looked at very large numbers of babies that have or have not been vaccinated. And when I say very large numbers, we're talking tens of thousands of cases And in fact, in some of those studies, you find higher levels of autism in babies that haven't been vaccinated. Now, what's true is that the levels of autism that we're diagnosing are rising in populations everywhere. And this probably actually reflects a number of things. One, it probably reflects better pickup. We're better at recognising autism, we have a diagnosis for these symptoms now, and therefore we label people as autistic or autistic spectrum, which previously we may just have labelled people as some other weird thing, or this mm. person's not normal. We would have used some pejorative term to describe someone who doesn't fit our template of what's normal. So there's probably better pickup and better diagnosis. It may also be that people are surviving better now than they would have done historically. Maybe children wouldn't have made it when they were uh, being born and those individuals might now be, because of better medical care in westernised countries and developed countries and developing countries, you may see individuals surviving who wouldn't have done before and therefore they're at risk of developing a condition like autism. It's a neurodevelopmental condition, but it goes maybe hand in hand with other things. Maybe that's why we're seeing more cases. There is, however, absolutely no link between vaccines and autism as far as we can tell
0: but th- this debate um it's, it's it's wonderful then for for it to be settled once and for all but uh, from a scientific point of view but in the minds of people chris it hasn't settled it comes up again and again and again uh, i wonder whether it has cost caused uh, too much damage or um it has helped uh, the medical fraternity to answer the questions to search for the answers uh, that people were searching for i wonder whether it's been damaging or positive
1: Uh, It's been intensely damaging Mm. and unfortunately that uh, publication which was in the Lancet Medical Journal was a flawed science, it was bad science and it was completely wrong and the damage it's done has been huge because the reality is measles kills people and rubella damages babies when they're developing inside mothers. If you deter people from having vaccines that protect them against these things then there's a risk if you catch mumps of becoming sterile, especially if you're a man. There are risks of having a baby that has abnormalities if you're an unvaccinated woman and you catch rubella, and anyone who catches measles can have some very serious side effects. So measles is nasty. Mm. and the, the damage that's been done is absolutely huge because it's, it's put into parents' minds, mm. this doubt. And, and I'm a parent, and I know that when I sent my own kids and they had an MMR vaccination, you always think, "Oh, I hope I'm doing the right thing. I know as a virologist that there's no link, but it still doesn't stop that trace of doubt. And I've suggested to various people that the best way to tackle this problem is, you know, if you're a business, you would rebrand your business. If you had some horrible Sass uh, scandal that surrounded your business and damaged the brand, the first thing that business would do would be to close the brand and they'd open under a new name, transfer the intellectual property and the finance, and they'd operate with the the great product they had, but they'd shed the scandal with a rebrand. They need to shed the scandal from the MMR mm. by rebranding it the RMM vaccine, for example, and just reverse the letters, uh. and it would, it would break the cycle in people's minds and, and get away from that scandal, which was very wrong. There's nothing wrong with that vaccine whatsoever.
0: OK, let's go to Carol in Hermanas. Good morning to you, Carol. Good morning. Good morning to you both. My question is... Um, Were the rocks along the coastline originally mountainous? Because with these waves crashing against them eternally, how do they remain there? That's my question.
1: Hi, Carol. Mm. Well, uh, yes, I mean, where the, where the rock meets the sea, it's subject to a relentless and intense erosion, and depending upon the nature and composition of the rock, it will either stand the test of time or not, because some rocks are what we call sedimentary rocks. In other words, they're just built up by the deposition over time of material falling to the seafloor and getting squashed, and then more material falls on top and squashes it harder. And this, in the end, cakes it into this tough rock. But it is still relatively soft and those sorts of so-called sandstones will erode relatively fast. On the other hand, igneous rocks which are rocks formed by volcanoes this is where molten material has come from the Earth's centre or below the surface of the Earth, come to the surface spewed out as lava and then cooled and hardened. Those rocks which include granites and basalts, they're really tough and they will, they will erode much more slowly. And on top of all that of course you've got geological remodelling of the planet, so Uh, For instance, South Africa is a wonderful place to mine gold because once upon a time, where all the goldfields are about an hour west of Joburg, um, y- you would have been standing in the middle of an ocean. There would have been a big inland sea there and mountains flushing material down into that sea, which was from volcanoes, and that's how all the gold washed into that sea and has now formed this dome of gold buried up to three or four kilometres down in the Earth's surface. And the Earth is therefore remodelling itself all the time, and what wasn't a coastline once now is, and what was a coastline once now isn't. So, uh, yes, you'll get erosion. It will be determined by the toughness of the rocks, but it will also be dictated by how the plates on the Earth are moving. Around and remodelling the Earth's surface, bringing bits and pieces into contact with oceans, uh, sometimes and not others.
0: I have a question here, and um, this will be the last one. Uh, hi, Reedy. May you ask this uh, naked scientist what the cure is for procrastination?
1: Can I answer that next week?
0: <laughs> okay, then. People, no, the, 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 we've got time for another one. People wants to know the difference between good and bad cholesterol.
1: Well, as she says, there are two flavours of cholesterol, broadly speaking. There's so-called HDL, which is high-density lipoproteins, and bad cholesterol, LDL, low-density lipoproteins. The HDL takes cholesterol out of tissues and carts it away to your liver to be got rid of. Low-density lipoproteins, LDL, takes the cholesterol and deposits it round your body. And it's the LDL cholesterol that can surrender the cholesterol and fatty material to the walls of blood vessels and and produce narrowings called atherosclerosis. And so if you have a a high level of LDL cholesterol in your bloodstream, we know this is associated with a higher risk of arterial disease, which can include heart disease and strokes. If you have higher levels of HDL cholesterol, this scavenges back cholesterol from LDLs and other tissues and takes it to the liver to get rid of it, and therefore that's associated with a lower risk of heart disease and strokes. Therefore, um, if you have um, high levels of HDL, you can have relatively high fats in the bloodstream, but you still have a lower disease risk than someone that has total lower fat overall, but a higher proportion of LDL. So uh, doctors will measure both of those things, and this can be used to compute what your risk of developing Mm -hmm. heart disease is.
0: Chris, we'll chat again next week. Take care.
1: No worries, and I'll have the answer for procrastination (laughs) if I can get round to Um. thinking about it.
0: (laughs) That's the Naked Scientist folks, and we will podcast that conversation.